Lately, USA is getting scarier. Half of the Americans I see all hate America. They hate the cops doing their best to take care of us and kneel for the flag and salt the soldiers that we're burying. I'm tired of the pissing and complaining. Why you living in America if all you do is hate it? You think it's brave to take a stand against a nation? Real bravery is dying for the right so you can say it. Dear America, what happened to Americans? Apparently no one's aware or cares that it's embarrassing. It's arrogance. Our greatest enemy was always slavery and terrorists. And now it's people in the country trying to burn the heritage. None of you can hear me. I was talking to myself. I'm just looking <laughs> for when he starts on his stream. Um, let's see. He's live, apparently. There we go. Okay. He's live. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to walk through these different points and try to do just a few minutes on each. Uh, things are not, so I'm in this weird situation for whatever reason, you can read my book. I ended up in the room for a whole bunch of stuff, but without, I've got no legal obligations. I didn't work for the president. There's no executive privilege. Don't have privilege from, I'm not a lawyer. Well, I can say anything I want and I'm not betraying any, any privileges or anything like that. And, uh, and I, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the country burning and everybody needs to know what happened and what happened is, is interesting and you need to know what happened, but it's somewhat different than what is that. Well, what people are all trying to put the pieces together. Maybe the people in the mainstream are of goodwill as they're trying to put the pieces together, but it's sort of five blind men feeling an elephant. And I'm trying to step in and, and help things a little bit. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about after the election, Immediately after the election, so as you read in my book, if you know my book, and I don't even talk to journalists now who haven't at least done the basic homework of understanding how all this came about, I was actually involved in some things for a few months before the election. It's sort of when the election happened, kind of morphed into this. And within a day or two after the election, I was in D.C. I had a pretty good idea of how things were going to unfold in the sense of I rented a block of rooms in the Trump Hotel and... Uh, I knew there'd be people coming and going, and I brought with me a bunch of people that I call dolphin speakers, propeller heads, uh, uh, technical people. And when I say hackers, I don't mean bad guys. I mean white hat hackers, people who are court certified, <coughs> cyber forensic people who can, whose profession is they work for law enforcement. They work on generally under contract to federal and state law enforcement. They they attack cartels. They attack different kinds of of criminal organizations, uh, and these kinds of people have certifications and licenses that that's that about you know how their work gets produced. They produce affidavits, all that stuff. They're super law-abiding people. They're the opposite of of hacker in the sense most people normally take it to mean. <clears throat> I understood that that, and not just hackers, but people who can put things together, people who can put things together, and that's different in my view than lawyers. No offense to the sheepskins, that's totally different. The last thing you want, really want around is the lawyers. And it was a team of people who were effective that, at, and some of them had federal backgrounds and FEMA type backgrounds. Some had military, some were these kind of military or civilian cyber guys. <clears throat> and 
don't not all of them are Trump Trumpians. A lot of them are like me. Some of them are like me. Don't care at all. I mean, I don't mean any disrespect to President Trump. This isn't about President Trump. It wasn't about it to us. And in other words, there were some of the people on the team who exactly like me, if we had woken up and see this happen to Joe Biden, we would have been on the knocking on the door of the DNC. <clears throat> There's a lot of new information I'm going to tell here. Uh, this, so I'm just telling what brought the parts together. Here's one thing that brought the parts together. There was a guy, there's a guy named Mike Tremarco, whose name has not come up, and he's a great American. He's just a business guy. I think he happens to have been maybe even a little bit closer to Hillary and the Democrats than the Republicans, at least at the beginning of all this. I think he's got deeper ties. To, however, his lawyer was Rudy, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy had two clients, President Trump and a fellow named Mike DeMarco, Mike Tremarco. And he's a wonderful fellow from, I think, uh, Queens, a, a guy who's built uh, uh, companies in financial services and financial technology, an entrepreneur and a savvy, you know, uh, uh, a, a businessman of some affluence, not some crazy uh, affluence. But he uh, he was he got a call from Rudy when Rudy got Rudy and his lawyer got the Hunter Biden laptop sometime in October. And because Rudy had a client who's a business guy, Mike Tremarco, he called Mike Tremarco and said, will you come help us? And there's a whole bunch of business stuff on this laptop. Will you come help us uh, come through it? So Mike goes to New York. He, this is some mid, mid late October, mid October. And he's going through this laptop with Rudy. He suggests maybe because there's a whole bunch of China stuff on it. He suggests maybe Mike Flynn who knows a lot about geopolitics should be brought in, but no one knew how to, no one, he didn't know how to reach Mike Flynn. He did have Sidney Powell's contact information, did not have Mike's. He called Sidney Powell and said, we want to reach Mike and see if he could come in and help us look at this computer and, and make sense of some things. And Sidney said, no, 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 I want to keep Mike out of it, uh, but I'll come. And it's not clear that she even ever told Mike about this in, uh, invitation, Mike General Flynn, uh, but she went. And so she ends up there with Rudy and his lawyer and Mike Tremarco, this business guy that they had brought in just to help look at it and say and read the contracts and stuff. And Sydney, from that point forward, the evidence is and sort of the stories are Sydney was trying very hard. She was very focused on she wanted to be in D.C. She wanted to be next to Donald Trump on November 3rd. It was things like this that were driving Sydney. And even after the election went bad, <coughs> television appearances and such somewhere in there i believe and i'm not speaking for him but it started to seem to me that Sidney powell was down there swanking around being a big shot and doing these things on lou dobbs and stuff and you know mike general flynn is back there his case isn't wrapped up he starts coming back and forth to see his lawyer to get his case wrapped up it was in that con back and forth to dc and I'm talking about over the over November. It's in that context that Mike and I meet each other. And we actually knew each other and spoke to each other before we spoke. We knew of each other and we had spoken to each other several months before the election. But he came to D.C. actually basically to track down Sydney and say, Sydney. So, uh, and that's how he showed up. What Sydney has, was doing was this. Mike Tremarco, just as I rented a block of rooms in the Trump Hotel, and incidentally, I did that 
had nothing to do with Donald Trump, had to figure it was the safest place for me to be in Washington, D.C., the safest hotel, because it was the one most likely to be attacked. So I figured it was probably really good on security. And I paid full rack rate. Donald Trump never knew. I never got any special break or something because from Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know if I ever had any idea, but I went out of locker rooms. And, and so there were just a lot of people coming and going for the next couple months. Meanwhile, the same kind of thing started developing elsewhere. It, over the river in Alexandria and Arlington, there was a Weston Hotel. Mike Tremarco showed up, and he's this business guy, and he did the same thing. He rented a block of rooms. I think he, he created, like, office spaces for some people to be working together. He created rooms for Sydney Powell and some of her people. There was another group on a different floor. I think maybe the – thank you. I'm on, on a different floor. Uh who was that? The, the something project, the MSA project, I think, or a different project. There was even another group that was a, a group of a, a retired federal prosecutors somewhere on the other side of the river. And they called. So there was different camps. There were at least three camps scattered on the Virginia side of the river, two in one. And then there was what I was doing with these dolphins, Rudy, and all of this. I'm talking about November 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th. <clears throat> somewhere in there, General Flynn is coming in to say, what about my case? Let's not forget that I've got a case still pending. We need to wrap this up. So he is coming back and forth primarily for that. And he and we got to know each other and, and began talking. So that's sort of the setting. I was there. I'm not going to go into something I mentioned. I'm not going to go into Antrim uh, specifically. There are other good journalists working on that. And uh, we'll see how how they do uh, before I come out and give any details or, uh, directly to the public. Um, but there were just at the what was happening was people were calling government officials. I understood to be calling as sort of minor like county junior recorders or county recorders or county clerks or something from around the country were contacting <coughs> themselves saying there's. <laughs> been some kind of we think there's maybe been some kind of mischief or something so out of the rudy world <clears throat> there were those kind of ongoing conversations our understanding myself and the dolphin speakers was that at some point we were going to be given they were going to be given access to things that they could legal access legal 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 and they emphasized to me patrick we got licenses and professional certifications and where we you lose all that if you're doing thing you know uh black magic so they over and over emphasized to me we're not doing anything unless it's all approved what we thought that meant was that we thought rudy and his lawyers were talking to these different state and county officials and then at some point we'd be getting and you know inv invitation hey come to this county and look at our machine, we think there's been some mischief, and I'm the county recorder, and I sign off on you opening the machine. Another thing these cyber guys taught me is there's basically two categories of things you don't mess around with at all. One is anything to do, and these guys work in the areas of, of kitty porn. And there's like no word in any language that can excuse you if you get caught with kitty porn. Evidently, election-related stuff is the same kind of radioactive stuff in the eyes of the federal government. So they were adamant. We're not doing anything that isn't super kosher. We'll not, you know, we'll lose all our licenses or professions go to jail and such. 
So I've now explained the different parties and I've kind of summarized the zeitgeist of November, what's going on from November 4th, 5th, up through the end of November. <coughs> when, when there were, after December 13, when the states had committed electoral votes, but there was, there continued to be lots of information just developing. There were different strategies. I have to say, so one strategy was, which seemed pretty basic, was just like some hearings and follow some objections and almost, let's say, a bureaucratic strategy. Bureaucratic. And it seemed pretty half-hearted, wasn't going to go anywhere. And frankly, Sidney Powell told me this is what Rudy's strategy was. He was just going to do this, file some token objections, let it all drop, and go home. There was another strategy, which involved actually getting in, getting permission to look at these machines legally, and look at, test these different hypotheses we had. So call that the digital strategy. There was another strategy, there was another strategy, which I now know, well, Navarro called it the Green Bay Sweep. And the Green Bay Sweep was to recognize that ultimately this was political. No amount of, you know, if somebody produced a videotape of the head of the DNC and Joe Biden, you know, conspiring and planning to do this and that, it still wouldn't work. You can't get that to a court. The court you couldn't have that whole process work. That ultimately this was a political process. And the Constitution provides and allows for that. It actually clearly envisions, the Federalist Papers envision, that there can be some kind of tumult and discord in the states. But that's why there's this mechanism. The state legislatures look at, look at all the facts. It isn't like every crime all has to be unscrambled. They look at every fact, and then they make their decision. So uh, the, the Green Bay strategy was to dig up enough and have hearings such as what happened in Maricopa and in Pennsylvania and stuff where citizens were able to come forward that at some point the state legislatures would say uh, it would, it would uh, they would look at that they would look at that and make their decision and then at the end of the day whatever they whatever they it's still a democratic that's still a democratic process it's the people deciding it's the elected officials deciding based on all the facts there and if really if a election is so hopelessly compromised in some state which is what i knew by november 10th and when you're going to find out someday when all the misdirection is done is these elections were so hopelessly compromised there is no way to know who won no way to know who won I mean, we can all guess based on the lengths of you know traffic lines and stuff but I knew by November 10th, this was an egg that could not be unscrambled and there was no way to encyclopedia brown your way down to the bottom of it and really figure everything out. So, and get, and get to that. Which means, given that, the Green Bay strategy, so I look at all of these and I actually thought the Green Bay strategy is the best. I did not know, I now understand, Rudy's strategy was not what Sydney was telling me, just the sort of almost bureaucratic, do a few things, follow some objections, and let it drop. His strategy was to do enough of this 
and then have that lead to the Green Bay strategy. Have that lead to enough stuff is getting dug up and exposed to the state legislatures that again, they can look at the facts and let them make their commitments. And that's quite sensible and much more sensible than I was led to believe Rudy's position was at the time, I have to let you know. And I'm afraid that that, here's an, uh, I'm afraid that, uh, here's something I will mention. And you're gonna hear, or I hear there's people who ask me questions about any sort of black ops stuff kind of. No, there was, there was, there was a guy from the, in, around us, a guy named Phil Baldwin, who everybody knows, and he comes from the road of the army and the, and that world. And his language tends to be, sound like a guy, I, I, I love Phil, he's a wonderful man. He's, he sounds like a guy who's read too much Tom Clancy, only he's from that world, so it isn't like he's faking it. But his language is, from, he, he used that kind of language. That, sort of Sydney was taken with some of that kind of language. I will tell you this, something I know for a fact. The only time anything that might was ever presented uh, that might possibly qualify as some stunt like that, it was presented to Rudy and Mike Camarco and was shot down on the spot. And both Phil and Sydney came home and told me this, uh, that Rudy had shot them down on the spot. And Rudy shot them down in two seconds. He said, fuck no. And he called in Bernie Kerrig. And Bernie Kerrig listened and said, fuck no. And they never presented any of it to Donald Trump. So in terms of any, any spooky talk about any, any language you hear that suggests somebody was trying to do any black ops or something, it was coming from that language was used by Phil too much. I correct. I, I addressed it with him once. But he and Sydney used that language. And, and I know there was a meeting where Sydney used some of the language with Rudy. And she told me afterwards, Rudy shut her down on the spot. Phil told me Rudy shut them down on the spot. And then I've been told by the other people. No, no. And two, they shut them down. And then Kerrig was brought in, shut them down. And they agreed they're not even going to tell Donald Trump. So anything like that was on the table for about two seconds. Just, you know. And other people involved, such as myself and the Dolphin speakers, had, the all Dolphin speakers had no would not participate in anything like that. Anything, every day we were very clear. We had a number of conversations and I didn't actually understand fully what was going on at the time, but what they were really telling me, I think at the time. Anyway, was, uh, was, was they, weren't, they were not comfortable with anything like that. Nothing like that happened. Nothing like that would have happened, could have happened because everything relied on the technical guys and te technical guys are squeaky clean uh, characters. So now we start getting to the nub of it. December 18, there's a memo that's been going around for a week, <coughs> dated December 16. <coughs> it looks like some memo for <coughs> someone to, for the president to sign off. I should have looked at it more closely when a reporter sent it to me a week ago. I thought maybe it was an earlier draft. Thank you so much. I thought that December 16th memo, I only glanced at it at first when some reporter sent it to me. And I speculated that it might be an earlier version of a, of a something of a December 18th memo from Sydney. I only really got around to reading it closely a couple of days ago. No. And that December 16th plays no, memo plays no role whatsoever in anything. Uh, I don't know who drafted it. I never saw it before. General Flynn never saw it before. Uh, and it just became public. I never saw it. 
Uh, I don't, uh, it could well be. So there were a lot of well-meaning people floating around, a lot of well-meaning people. So there are the people who I would call the players, if there was like the Rudy and these different people. And then there's the sort of very active outsider, but who are sort of very closely tied in. And then there's a lot of people that we collectively term with great affection, the Bruce from Oshkosh. You know, just people that come in from across America and they're, they've got their, their hats, their and their, their MAGA gear, and they're staying in hotels out of the city. And, uh, you know, they're writing memos too. And these memos are bouncing around and such. This memo that's gotten public that says that uh, it was a December 16th memo, and it says stuff about uh, Dominion and Heart. It says something about individual companies saying, based on this, we need to do this. That memo played no role in anything. I'm sorry that I did not look at it more closely when it came out a week ago. This is what happened on December 18th. <clears throat> um, and my, my book goes through how we got in. I was the one who pulled together kind of this plan without even really letting Sydney or General Flynn know what might be at the end of it. I got to know some staffers who had always been inviting, you know, oh, you got to come over to the White House sometime and let's give you a tour. And on Friday the 18th at about 6 p.m., I called them and said, 6.15, I said, hey, is it too late? Can I come over uh, for my tour? And it was very rude because, of course, it was not appropriate, but they were too nice to say anything. So they said, sure. And then meanwhile, I'm telling Sidney and Mike that we may have a chance to do something and gather stuff together. But Mike is, it, it, this is about Sydney, and you'll see. They quickly printed up in about 45 minutes, Sydney and her staff printed up uh, some documents. I'll talk to you about in a moment. We all go over. They didn't really know where we were going to end up. We get there, sort of by hook or by crook. We get through, you know, the, the staffers recognize. It was all just very strange. We kind of got in, anyway, and we kind of jumped from office to office. And as the book describes, we end up catching, being down the hall from the Oval Office and catching President Trump. He had no idea we were coming. He had no idea we were coming. Uh, uh, and we were down the hall from them, and we get, and we got ushered in. We're along with the president, and it's the it was four of us. It was Sydney, General Flynn, myself, and a, and a lawyer of Sydney's named who I describe in my book as uh, Alyssa. I think <coughs> her name is out there. Everybody knows it now. Her name is Emily. Um, and so we're there, and we're in that in the Oval Office with him. We were with President Trump for four and a half hours. Uh, somewhere within about 20 minutes or half an hour, his own lawyer came in, and Mark Meadows and Rudy were on the phone. So that, and, and that went on for two hours, and then another two hour meeting up in the residence. So that's the physical circumstance. This is what was, this is now, this is the content of that meeting. It was, uh, it was interesting, just so people know, and I'm not saying this to rather, I'm just trying to be honest. President Trump doesn't like me, and I wouldn't go on a camping trip with a guy. If you go back to 2015, 2016, I said some really unkind things about him. Uh, if you go back, you can see uncharitable and unlikely to be that uncharitable. I don't know it was, uh, anyway. Uh, but I also had just the same day, I just trashed the hell out of Hillary Clinton. And maybe I felt the need to be a little more balanced. Uh, however, I did, I, I, I had not, I did not vote for him. 
I'm not a supporter, and he knows that. He, in fact, but he was very gracious, and I want to emphasize, he in person was much, much different than I had expected. And when he came in and we all sat down, one of the first things he did was turn to me, and he said, you know, I know you said some pretty unkind or pretty harsh things about me. Uh, and I said, yes, sir. And I, I didn't say I'm sorry. I just said, yes, sir. And, you know, but, uh, I think I said my... Uh, my feelings about you have grown while you're in office, but none of that has anything to do with while I'm here, sir. Why I'm here, sir. And he accepted that. We and we moved on. I really didn't say a thing for the next 30 to 45 minutes. This is what was discussed. Everyone has it all wrong in the paper. What was discussed was two executive orders, one signed by President Obama and one signed by Donald Trump. President Obama in 2015 signed an executive order and Donald Trump in 2018 signed either an extension or an addendum or a related executive order. And what these executive orders basically say is if a foreign government interferes in one of our elections, the president really can do, has an extraordinary range of powers. The president can... You know, anything from ordering an investigation to looking at equipment, seizing equipment, to canceling an election and rerunning it if he wants. Yes, and you know, Barack Obama signed this too. It's an, and it's not, it's an extraordinary range of powers based on if a foreign government has broken into an election. So Sydney and her, uh, and, and Emily Newman walked President Trump through the, the Obama, now this is what was all printed out, the Obama executive order and then his own executive order. And this is where just a little bit of color, I started getting, he's a very smart guy. I have sat you know, many times with people going through contracts and such. And he just, he's, I was just surprised by how quickly he scanned, asked very good questions out of the thing, uh, had good answers from Sydney and Emily were very well prepared. And then in addition, there had already, and, and what, these two, what these two executive orders together say is if there's been foreign interference in this election, Mr. President, we would have a range of options, an enormous range of options. <clears throat> then there were letters from the FBI and CISA at, from both, I think, October 25th, plus or minus, and November 3rd. And there was... I'll, I'll call you. I'll call you. Um, thanks. Thanks, someone just pulled that up for me. Uh, and was this the... I'm not sure this is the exact... Uh, uh, this, it does matter. Um, there were... Well, yeah, there were... Uh, well, they put out letters saying on, like, October 23rd that, yes, the Iranians were trying... <clears throat> and they have since indicted somebody for doing all this. On October 20, 21st, in Southern District of New York, they indicted a Sayyid Muhammad Hussein Musa Kazmi. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. They put out letters saying that the Iranians had, in past tense, had interfered with the election. I mean, if you go and find that language, there's language, especially, I think, in the November 3rd letter, that you would think matches exactly what these other two executive orders say needs to happen for the president to say, hey, for the president to have the right to, to do something. And the FBI and CISA had already come out and said that the Iranians were, I think it was like on October 25th or so, they were saying the Iranians are attempting to do this 
And on November 3rd, they came out and said the Iranians had done something. They had, uh, you'll have to find the exact language yourself, but it looked like, so they were also, they were walking through that and making the argument that even just based on forgetting anything we had found or anything we thought that what the FBI and CISA had already reported was enough to trigger what uh, the president's powers under these executive orders. That was the discussion for about 45 minutes. I'm not entirely sure. There may or may not have been a memo <clears throat> dated December 18 from Sydney for the president to sign. <clears throat> I believe I saw that in her, off her printer in her apartment, in, in the suite in the hotel. <clears throat> I cannot swear uh, and I don't even, I don't remember that even, even us getting to that, frankly, in front of the president. Because what happened was after about 45 minutes, if anyone doubts the specificity, specificity of my memory, go on Rumble, look up my name and deck of cards. And I will, so I can promise you this is not, you, I'm going to tell you a story, you got to wonder if I'm, if my memory is accurate, and even if it is, am I being honest? I can solve the memory problem if you just go and look at this thing on Rumble. I promise you this is a very precise memory. We're somewhere in there after a 30, 45 minutes of pause. And the presence was sort of taking it all in, and he said, it, uh, he said, what, what are you telling me? What are you folks saying? And that was the first time I spoke up again. And I was over on the side. And to be honest, it's the best line in the book, and I forgot it as I wrote the book. It was my best line. He hadn't, he hadn't even looked at me for that. <laughs> minutes. And he uh, said, what are you folks telling me? And I spoke up and said, put us in, coach. And he looked at me, he said, looked at me kind of funny. He said, yeah, put us in, coach. We're, we're going to win this. We're going to win this. Um, there are, if you accept that you have these range of powers, and that it's been triggered, then there's really three, three questions to decide. <clears throat> now, everybody knows at this point our theory of how this was done. I don't want to go into it, but that this was jujitsu primarily by focusing on six counties, which are the six anchor counties of six swing states. And if you jujitsu them, you don't have to have, see, that's why it's a straw man, this thing about, well, even Mars said there's no widespread fraud. Yeah, it doesn't have to be widespread fraud. Has to be there's 3,006 counties in America. You need to cheat like crazy in six of them. And what do you know? All kinds of funny things happen in those six counties. So we won't go down that path. <clears throat> but but he understood all that. He understood the whole logic of everything, the electoral logic. I was the one who laid out the options. Not Sidney Powell, not Mike Flynn, not Rudy, or whatever. That's where I spoke up. And after I, and he said, what do you mean? When I said, put us in coach, but, you know, I said, these are, if you decide to go forward, there are three questions to be decided. That is, where would we go investigate? Where would, where would the investigation be done? Uh, what would be done? And who would do it? And on the question of, and it was organized very clearly like this. I used to be a teacher and I had organized this out mentally beforehand. I had organized and on where we would go, the choice was 6, 
12 or 31 counties. And Seth Keschel, whom the president did not know at the time, you all know who Seth Keschel was, had done the, so the six obvious counties where there'd been so much uh, uh, unusual activity. There were 12 counties <clears throat> or a smattering of 31 counties, not, not states, but 31 counties, a mixture of red and blue, urban, suburban, rural, Hispanic, black, white, and the 31 counties, if we did all of that, would have finally answered this question that is the big question overhanging American politics for decades. How much election fraud is there really? I know that the bromide answer that people get fed in their poli-sci undergraduate courses is, oh, it's never been proven, nobody has... Uh, so anybody who has any skin in the game is very aware there's a lot of election fraud. I think just question, well, the question is, how, this would have answered that. And so anyway, I've been, I, went, I just went into far more detail with you than I did with the president. But I laid out 6, 12, or 31. The advantage of just going at 6 is it's the lightest footprint. The advantage of going to 12, 31 is we get, we get to answer this question for all of American politics with this broad sample. Very quickly, Trump did this, like, thank you. Trump did that to indicate not 31, more like he liked the idea of something like like footprint. Uh, he was attracted to that. I said, what is to be done? At a minimum, we want to open the ballot boxes on live stream. They, they should, I say we, I'm not part of the, anything, but the ballot boxes would be opened in those six places or 12 places on live stream TV, counted and the paper examine stuff on live stream TV. This is a base case. Next case is you would image the hard drive. And imaging the hard drive means just making a, a copy of it, but a forensically secure copy that stands up in court and people give affidavits and there's a chain of custody and all that kind of stuff. There's, a, there's an image of the hard drive, leaving everything in place, but taking an image of the hard drive and the router logs and then taking them back to some government facility People look at it and say, gee, was there foreign penetration of this machine during the election? And then the biggest step would be to actually take the machines and take them back to some other government facility. But, Mr. President, the truth is, if you get the images, there's not much additional to be gained by actually taking machines. And he had me go over that again. And I remember it because he, he had me go over that again. And I explained that again that we could do everything, you know, from the very basic is just on live stream TV so the public can see, open up the boxes and count on live stream TV and any examination of paperwork as well uh, for being counterfeit or anything like that, but all live and such. Or doing that plus taking an image of the hard drives and the routers and then going and looking at them on, uh, you know, the government could take them back and look at them and examine them off-site, but you're still leaving all the equipment there with the counties. And the most extreme would be actually taking the equipment. And but and he said something, but there's not, you know, he, he, he asked a question that showed he'd understand what I was saying, that there's not much point in taking the extreme step because you get all the information basically that you would get just from that, and you can get just by taking the image, which again is a lighter footprint. And he immediately like made clear, yeah, that's what, you know, at the most, that's what would be done. No, no seizing, no taking of machines. Now, this is a point I'll correct you on. The seizing does have a legal meaning. I understand the seizing, seizing would cover either case, but that's legal world, and we're talking reality world. And when you write for the press and you write the discussion of seizing the machines, they want to seize the machines. That no, Trump. If, if you're really talking about taking the machines off, 
that was on the table for five seconds, and and Trump immediately made, made clear he understood. I, I remember him specifically asking to go over it again and confirm. He said, "There's nothing to, to be. You don't get anything extra by it, really." But I said, "No, just the image would be enough." And so he was. He he clearly uh, said that at the mo. You know that would be the, what we would do if we did anything. Then the question is, who would do it? And I said, "Sir, <clears throat> I think there's been a total breakdown of trust, and there is no state or uh, 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 I mean, what we have to do is have something that the public will trust. The public needs to trust it, and the most trusted institutions in the public are the courts and guys in uniform." Uh, Mike Flynn had told me, "You don't need the DOD. You don't want the DOD." because of all the cultural and constitutional reasons that you don't want uniforms around your, your elections. He told me uh, that the National Guard has very capable cyber units. And there are people who work at you know, Microsoft and such, and they do their two, weeks, two weekends a year or whatever, and on, it's a National Guard unit, but they're actually uh, a cyber unit within the National Guard. He said they're very competent. So what I recommended, I said, sir, we can do, you can go from, Either take teams, but I was proposing was joint team led by U.S. Marshal, surrounded by National Guard people from these cyber teams to go to these six places. But if that's not if this idea of anyone and I like the National Guard, it's not like the it's not like big DOD, and it's our brothers and sisters and coworkers and all among us, and it's the people, it's the people, and if the goal is to reestablish trust. You take people from the court, you know, the U.S. Marshals work for the courts. And if you've had sort of joint teams led by them going in with a National Guard cyber team with each one, that would be the quickest way to get to an answer that the public would trust. However, if that's too edgy, you can go with DHS has teams for the FBI. Immediately, uh, Pat Cipollone spoke up. Now, I don't like this guy. I probably shines through my book, didn't like the guy, but he spoke up immediately. I said, Mr. President, no uniforms, no uniforms. If there's any uniforms there, <clears throat> the press will crucify you. And I said, well, what's the press doing now? And Rudy on the phone spoke up and said, no, Mr. President, no uniforms, no, no, uh, no, no National Guard. And Trump immediately agreed with them and indicated we'd be talking about DHS or FBI. And I actually was a little bit pushy. And even after he said that, I brought it up again. <clears throat> and, I, and I said, sir, just to be clear, uh, you know, it's your call, but the issue here is trust. And there, are, there is no stack of suits. From the, there is no stack of suits from the DHS that you can stack on top of each other to give their word on something that the public will trust. The public will trust, and he, he just sort of dismissed it. He, he like I basically I made I made my decision. No, we're talking about DHS and, or FBI. So you know, guys, journalists, it drives. I uh, so I did a PhD in philosophy at Stanford, which specializes in analytic philosophy. And the analytic philosophy are the guys, were the guys who decided about 100 years ago that these wankers have been messing around with philosophical questions for 2,500 years, and they don't get anywhere because the language is so vague and spongy. But if you just get language really crisp, a lot of the problems go away, and it's all about getting language crisp. 
So I hate when I read, you know, with journalists saying, well, this, you know, you'll see tomorrow some journalists saying, you know, they were considering burn. It was on the table for about five seconds. It came from me. Cipollone shot it down. Rudy shot it down. Trump agreed. Mike Flynn said, sided with them or he didn't fight it. I, I think privately Mike Flynn understood my logic, but uh, he didn't agree. You know, his he understood maybe a deeper way than I how how problematic it would be to have any uniforms there. I uh, and so he he surrendered the point or didn't 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 join on my side. So I was the only guy making that argument and was, was shot down in five or ten seconds. I'll defend my dying breath that that would have been the right thing to do uh, or, or the logic behind that. We don't just matter how many Charlie Krebs you line up and to do this, and no, nobody cares what they say anymore. Here's where it getting also interesting. I said on three occasions, so we can get this done. This was December 18th. It was a Friday night. We can get this done by New Year's Eve. In fact, sir, I think we can get it done in a week. We could have the answer for the nation by Christmas Eve. And the truth is, we could get you read a read in about three days. But three days, we'll be able to tell you, are we finding the things we expect to find or not? And again, he asked me to say that again, or like to confirm that I, and I confirm, yeah, I really think that if we got rolling tomorrow, in three days, we'll have a early injury. But, so just to be clear, if, it's, if we don't come up with what we are expecting to come up with, you'll have to concede immediately. Well, I started to even say that, and he cut me off. And this is where, so I'm not saying this for the love of Donald Trump and loyalty and calling as, it's, as exactly as it has happened. He couldn't say quick enough, Patrick, Pat, he was going to call me Pat, which is charming. Um, it tells me we come from the same hood originally. He, uh, he uh, when I said in that explanation, and so just to be clear, if we don't come up immediately with what we think we're going to find, You'll have to you know, be conceding. He cut me off and said, Pat, you have no idea. You have no idea how easy that would be for me. You have no idea. You know, we looked over the right shoulder out on the south lawn. I said, Pat, on January 20th, Marine One's going to land out there. And I can walk out there. I'd be in that helicopter and fly away. And my life's going to be really good. Somebody really, really good. He didn't come out and say it'd be a lot better, but I could tell that you know, he was a 75 year old man who was tired, that his jackals had been beating up for four years. I read very much. Well, he, well, he said, uh, you know, I'll be out by the next day, I'll be on a golf course, I'll be with my friends, I'll be playing golf. Believe me, Pat, my life is going to be great. But can I really do that? If I think that this election has been stolen and there may be, this may be a foreign attack on our country, can I really do that? We must have returned to that point. We had this strange intimacy developed between us a few times like that, like almost on the side, just between the two of us, where it was like CEO to CEO. I even said that to him once. CEO to CEO, to CEO you're not being, well, but three times we returned to this. Well, he said, Pat, you have no idea how easy it will be for me to walk away. My life's going to be just fine if I walk away. So, but I, I you know, if I think that there's a, uh, our country's been, our election's been hijacked, there might be a foreign government. Can I really do that? 
And he said it really plaintively. And I felt very sorry for the man. I think he was totally ready. So any attempt to paint him as some strange love, Dr. Strange love figure trying to grasp the power and just couldn't get up is total nonsense. It's total nonsense. And I would tell you otherwise, it's total nonsense. I was a guy ready to walk out. He, it's total nonsense that in any way there was any Dr. Strange love type of Machiavellianism or attachment or he just couldn't leave. He was, it just isn't true. It was absolutely false. And I spent four and a half hours with the guy in the middle of a conversation that was, you know, that was at the heart of all this. So all that's, when people had tried to paint this as, you know, black ops to seize machines and take them and Trump was pulling a coup or something, it's complete nonsense. Complete, in the frame of reference we were in, though, believing, as I still believe, that the election was rigged, the, the, the coup happened on November 3rd. The, well, if the election was rigged, it happened on November, the, the, then that means a soft coup occurred on November 3rd. And I'll tell you something, there's only one way to find out. We'd find out in three days, just open those ballot boxes. It's the only thing we need to do. But, so all these people would have to say, baseless, baseless, baseless. There's a real simple way we can all find out. Just open those, mm-hmm. open those ballots in those six places. And the same people who are saying baseless are the ones saying, oh no, that would be crazy. We could never do that. So that's what really happened on December 18th. I'm going to throw you uh, two more things. Jan- uh, January 4th, I was in a meeting in the Trump Tower. There's like a condo on the ground floor, two-story condos. First time I was invited to it. And a bunch of people came over from Congress, as senators and congressmen, and there were senators and congressmen on the phone. Now, I don't remember who was who and such. There were some scientists there, very sober guys who could explain what we were finding. The guys with NSA, NSA background and other backgrounds who could explain what we were finding and what we thought. And there were people back in Congress, I think on video conference. And there were representatives. Some congressmen didn't come, but they sent their chief of staff. And there was some guy from the intelligence community staff on Congress. And all the questions got answered. Let's say it was a three-hour-ish meeting, two-and-a-half-hour meeting. Questions got answered in the first hour. Uh, I'd say after that, it became more about strategy. And here was the strategy. The strategy was to have senators and congressmen, and this is, you got to go to study the 1887 electoral law or something. So, yes, the Constitution treats the, the vice president's job as like a bureaucratic job, just an administerial position. He's going to open the envelopes and read them. The 1887 law provides mechanisms for this is how we're going to work through disputes, which tells you, tells me it no longer envisions the vice president's job just to be opening the envelopes and reading, because if that's all you're doing, how can there be disputes? So, so the discussion was, and the desire was, no one's trying to overturn an election, of course, you reporters who write that, you're doing something called begging the question. You're assuming your conclusion. We don't know who overturned the election. If we're right about the writing, those are the people who overturned the election. And but what the idea was to, on January 6th, have enough objections brought by enough senators that the whole, that the whole thing would have been bought a, a week or 10 days. 
And the idea was well, everyone would go back to their states. Each state could have its own quick, quickie hearings like happened in Maricopa. The state legislatures could do anything they wanted, have hearings, call witnesses, do anything they want for a week. And then they just have a new vote. And they take account of everything they've learned in Pennsylvania, everything they've learned in Wyoming, everything they've learned in, you know, Arizona. And in that, in that extra seven days, and then they vote again and recommit their electoral votes. And everyone's back in Washington, D.C. by January 13th or 16th in Congress is meeting and doing their thing and making decisions. And the new president, the new term starts on January 20th. Now, one could argue that provides some insult to the rule of law. It's not the Constitution. January 6th is not a constitutional date. It comes from that electoral law. It also, you know, I would say, I knew we were going to be exactly where we are now. I knew we were going to be where we are now as a country. And this seems to me to be an extraordinary insult to the Constitution to jam down a, an election that at this point, somewhere in the high 60, really only about 20%, 20 to 25% of Americans would say that Joe Biden, they believe he was legitimately elected. It's either unsure or they doubt it to different degrees. I knew we were going to be here. That's an insult to the Constitution. If everything had just been, and so to me, the plan of pushing things back to the states for a week to 10 days, let everybody in a week look into whatever they want to look into, and then if they want to, then they vote, and if they, if they want to recommit to Joe Biden, recommit to Joe Biden, if they want to change to Donald Trump, change to Donald Trump, it's at least a, you know, it's a little bit of an aberration from the originally foreseen process. But anything you do at that point was... Uh, and then so, and at least this wasn't insulting the Constitution. Yeah, it was letting a date slide that was set in an 1887 law. That date would have had to slide 10 days. I would have, I heard that's a significantly less insulting thing to do to the country than just, you know, caving over something that at this point, three quarters of people don't believe. So that was the proposition, not overturning an election. That's what it was. I would defend to my dying day. Those were reasonable, logical steps. I was putting them forward. I was among them putting them forward. I was the one in the White House mentioning, uh, saying, you know, the choices, uh, the teams to use are either uh, a, a joint U.S. marshal coupled with some national security guys, uh, uh, national guard people, or it's DHS or it's FBI. And I was the guy saying we go into six, 12, or 31 uh, counties, not states, counties. And in all cases, Trump and everyone else was the one going for the lightest footprint approach. So, honest to God, that's what really happened. Now, <laughs> and Mike Flynn basically was my advisor, the guy who would answer questions to me. When I go to him and say, who has a cyber team who would go and do this and that? And he's the one who tells me, well, don't use the DOD. Not, not the, you know, but there are, uh, you know, he, he could answer questions for me. And he, he was there almost as a listening to this meeting himself. The meeting was basically Sidney and Emily explaining the, the papers to President Trump, and then me speaking up and saying, well, he's like, well, what are you saying with all this? And me saying, put us in, coach. You know, we've got a plan, and this is the plan. This is how we could do it. We could, and we could have an answer for you in a week. We can have an answer to It was December 18th. I said, we have an answer, final answer by New Year's Eve. We'll, we'll have an answer by Christmas. And I think we'll have an answer in three days for you. I have an answer. And he could not have been quicker to say, and, and, but, and each time I said it, uh, I said this thing about, sir, if, we're not, if we don't find what we think we're going to find, you'll have to very quickly make clear that 
he couldn't say quickly enough. A pad, I would have no problem doing that. You have no idea how easy it would be for me to do that. I, you have no idea how easy it's going to be for me on November, on January 20th to walk out there and get in the helicopter and leave the city and never come back to the city. My life's going to be a lot better. But can I really do that if I think this has been stolen? So I think his his hesitation and his his quandary was absolutely legitimate, absolutely legitimate for him to have. It'd be ridiculous to, to criticize him for having that, being in that kind of a quandary. He absolutely was in an ethical, legal, monumental, historical quandary. At every moment, he was the guy, he and his staff, and I, I'll give credit to Chip Alone, credit to Chip Alone was always pushing him towards taking the least invasive of these different options. As I laid out these different spectra of decision-making, Chip Alone or Chip Alone or whatever, was always, and he was always very quick to accept Chip Alone's advice and Rudy's and everybody saying, yeah, go for the, go for the tamest option. I swear to God, that's what happened. Now, I'm going to throw you a bone and tell you what happened on January 6th. I know something. It's one of these things where I don't really know. I mean, I don't know everything, but I know something for you good journalists to look into. So I was invited to speak at a bunch of the different rallies, and I came out louder than anyone. Once uh, we were considering asking there to be rallies in every state capital or national, and I had not made up my mind, and then I heard that Donald Trump was calling for a rally in D.C. So I went on the radio and started, and uh, I gave some links in the press release for this. Where I went on and joined in calls asking for people to come for peaceful assembly, January 4, 5, and 6. And people told me it got tedious how much I talked about how this has to be peaceful and we're better than the other guys. And we're not the goons. And this is going to be peace, 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 and no violence, and on and on and on. <clears throat> However, because of this position that I was getting asked to, to go to different plazas and platforms and speak, I, I, like I wasn't immersed in the groups that were doing the organization, but I was sort of bouncing off them because I was doing, so I'm going to this plaza, oh, you're the people who organize this, oh, I don't know, so what's your organization, oh, you're the bikers for Trump, oh, yeah. and it was that kind of stuff. So I, so I was getting some of a look into each organization. This is what really happened. There's a group run by the Kremer sisters, or I call them sisters, it may be mother daughter. And I forget the name of the group. Pardon me, all these groups' names kind of blended into one. They had some kind of bus tour going around the country in favor of Donald Trump before the election. After the election, and I'm going to tell you where some real mischief is to look into. After the election, it got turned into a, a tour whose theme was Stop Us from Being, I don't know if it was called Stop the Steal or that was a different name, but that became the theme. Somebody showed up in the organization and wanted to vote for them. They didn't want a person, frankly, is what I'm told, but a person said she could make herself useful. Her name was Cindy Sheehan, or Sheehan, something like that. And they gave her a job, which was just to book the permits on that tour. So as the bus tours go through, as it's winding its way across country, November and December, and it goes through Dubuque, Iowa, and there's going to be a rally. This person is the one calling the police, the town hall, getting the permits, all that kind of stuff. You know, a few days ahead or a week ahead of this bus tour just going around. She, on around December, and she did that for like a month or two for them and did it just fine. And then as they got close to Washington and it became time for her to put in the applications for Washington, she put the applications in. 
but unbeknownst to her bosses, which the Kremer sisters, she created a new organization with a name 80% in it. I don't know the full name. And uh, she actually put in the permits in the name of her new organization and didn't tell her bosses. Then on the morning of January 5th, she reveals to her bosses, who are all getting all set up to, you know, they think that they're going to have a big rally or something today. They have permits for it. She tells her bosses, sorry, I got the permits, but they're not in the name of this organization. They're in the name of this new organization I started. And her bosses say, but you work for us. And she says, fuck you. And the out the door. And she took it. And that's where this guy named Ali Akbar shows up. Ali Akbar, a.k.a. Ali Alexander, but his real name is Ali Akbar. And it was that woman, Cindy Sheefin or something, and Ali Akbar, who kind of snaked it away from the Kremer sisters. That's where the mischief is. And, and the sleeve, so that, that little sleight of hand, they got a hold of it. Now, it is the case. They got a hold of it and, and took it over. It is the, they tried to take it over. For two days. It is the case that the Kramer sisters would have got back in the picture for the next morning. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. For the, the thing that happened on January 6th at the south of the White House. But those two people who, and I've had a, I had just enough of interaction with them to know that there's wrong. It's wrong. Something's wrong there. They aren't what they seem to be. They aren't what they pretend to be. They snaked it away from the Kramer sisters. And Someone in the Republican Party is behind that. So I, I, I've seen the sleight of hand and I see the sleeve. I don't know where the sleeve leads other than it leads into the Republican Party. And that's and if you want to know what happened and how things uh, evolved as they did on January 6th, I do think that there was mischief in place. It's, uh, I can tell you it's absolutely not Trump. That's crazy. Trump and everybody who was on the inside, everybody understands. What happened on January 6th destroyed the only chance he had. Just so you know, there was a really a plan that we thought had a real life, real possibility of working. There were as many as a dozen senators who were going to stand up and challenge the, the recognition of electoral votes from certain states and say there's just been way too much craziness, boom, 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 and challenge it. And that was, and they had agreed after that January 4th meeting. Everyone had gone back, the congressmen and senators had gone back, the representatives had all stood on it. By 24 hours later, that was the plan. And they were going to be blocked. There were a bunch of senators and House members who were going to stand up and object to the seating, and that was going to buy the week. That was needed if there was any, if there, and for everyone to do their thing. I'd go back to the states, look at it again, and then recommit their vote to change the votes, whatever the states wanted to do. That plan, which I think of as moderate in the scheme of things, given the situation. You can't just be a little bureaucrat. I mean, uh, that plan was utterly destroyed by what happened on January 6th. The idea that Trump was back there, do we have anything to do with that, is, is absolutely false. He knew that that was destroying the only chance he had. Uh, because <laughs> once the rally goat came, and that all turned into what it turned into. There was no senator who was going to stand up for him. I think Cruz did momentarily or something. And then, you know, about Ted Cruz. <coughs> can't decide which side of, you know, you know, the leaders who basically hold their thing. Ah, oh, which way is the wind blowing? Okay, I'll leave everyone that way. Uh, but I, 
shouldn't have said that to Ted Cruz. He showed some courage. He occasionally shows much more courage than most senators. All that said, it did not come. So I do think there was mischief from the Republican Party had something to do with what happened on January 6th. It is not Trump. The sleeve behind the Ali Akbar Cindy thing doesn't lead to Trump or Trump's circle. If it leads, it may lead to the, and I'm gonna, it may lead towards the White House. And if it does, it leads to some people around Mike Pence. But I don't know enough to say more. That or I don't know. I'm not going to say any more than that. And it's going to be up to the work of some real investigative people to figure that out. If you want to know where it came from, that's where that's where the mischief came from. Okay, so that was an hour. I got through a lot of material. Let's go to questions. I got so I got the whole story out. So anyone, so and I feel like given that I feel like my country's on there. You know, I hope that we don't nothing else burns. But I'd be especially regretful if anything bad happened and it happened because people had been, people were imagining that what happened was this, that, or the other thing. When I kind of, when I know what happened and I'm kind of alone and being able to speak about what happened. Okay, so let's go to questions. Um, so you have, how do, how do I hear questions? Ah, Michelle. I'm Associated Press. Hello, Michelle. Michelle Smith from Associated Press. Hi, Mr. Byrne. How are you? Good. Nice to hear your voice. Um, I'm just pulling out my question here. So you um, you referenced uh, uh, the, the January 4th meeting where you said congressional staff were briefed and January 6th strategy was discussed. Who were the staff and what were they briefed on? Other... other uh well, I've just told you what they were briefed on. They were briefed on, say, for the first hour, what we knew already about what had gone on in the different states and so forth. And then the strategy was uh, that there would be senators who would raise objection. Senators, I think the 1887 electoral law says something like, for each state, if there is a, a senator and a member of the House, it's a joint session, and I think they... If there are two people who object, that sends things into like an automatic two-hour discussion back at the respective. Uh, it, it, it invokes a process. So, eight, the 1887 law describes a process to resolve disputes, and what what would have been done is the senators and members of the House who would be involved were going to trigger those processes and to put everything into dispute, and we believed or that that would end up leading to Mike Pence being able to say, you know what, we're going to take a week as, preside, as, the, as the man presiding over this meeting, uh, I'm going to call a recess for one week and then we're all going to reconvene. And then, so that, that was the strategy in a nutshell. And that we can call that the Green Bay, people call that the Green Bay Sweep. I understand Bannon is now using that term, but that was Peter Navarro's term, the Green Bay Sweep. So that was the strategy and who the people were. Uh, I'd rather you get that out of I mean, I think it may already have been in articles. I'm not in the business of, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you the important stuff about having which staffers came over and stuff. Other people can speak there, and I, I think other reporters may already have that, and it may already be out there. And the truth is, I can only remember a few of their names. I wasn't, I, I recognized a couple of the senators. I, I, I couldn't even be very clear about who was in the room and who was on the phone and such. Thank you. 
Uh, hi, Mr. Byrne, it's Ann Vanishfield with Steel Truth. Question, on January 4th, um, you said that the NSA was at the meeting. Sidney Powell had gone on Lou Dobbs a number of times. Uh, some representatives from the NSA were at that meeting, you said. No, 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 no. No? no there was an ex-NSA scientist at the meeting. I'm uh, sorry, ex-NSA. Ex okay, so Sidney Powell had gone on uh, Lou Dobbs uh, at least once and talked about Hammer and Scorecard. Was Hammer and Scorecard discussed at that meeting uh, and... Did, uh, or any meeting, it said perhaps not even on January 4th, but also in the meeting with President Trump and was NSA O'Brien uh, present during any of that? No, that was much too speculative, much too speculative. None of that came up. None of that came up. No one would put their fingerprint that, you know, much too speculative, whether it's true or false, everything like that. That never came up in the White House, nor did it come up in what we were talking about at, at, uh, in that meeting on January 4th. That was much too spicy. I thought about it being quite nascent at that uh, at that stage. That information was very partial. It was coming in through some sources that we didn't didn't know who to trust or who to believe or stuff. So we had the same rumors and stories other people had, but there was nothing substantive that anyone was willing to hang a hat on. Now that played no role whatsoever in any of these discussions. Mr. Robinson, that's a name I I know. I don't think you've ever spoken, Miss Robinson. Nice to see you here. Hey, it's good to hear from you, Mr. Byrne. So you talked about uh, what you were investigating and what you talked to President Trump about in regards to executive orders. There was a foreign government involved in election interference or, you know, what was going on. Now, I think it's kind of unclear. And what you said is, who, so who, who did you ultimately think was in the, uh, responsible for the cheating. Do you think it was a foreign government or considering that the elections are essentially led by the states and the state governments, who do you, who do you think was responsible? I don't really want, it's, it's, I think it's a who's cafe of different layers. Uh, I'm, I, we now have a very clear picture, much clearer than a year ago, of how it was done. Uh, and But setting aside who's in the background doing it, we just know how it's done. We know how it's done. And yeah, so I, I, don't want to, I really don't want to go into the theories about what happened on November 3rd. I want to, so uh, yeah, uh, I think there is foreign involvement. Uh, the FBI and CISA said there was foreign involvement. By the way, here's something for you. Look up the SolarWinds hack. Everyone remembers the SolarWinds hack. <clears throat> the biggest, the, you know, this big hack. Well, SolarWinds has a network engineering product that was hacked, and the government came out and said this was a foreign attack, et cetera, et cetera, uh, a foreign cyber attack. There were the executives of one of the machinery companies, which I won't name, came out and said, their guy under oath, their CEO under oath, I think in Michigan, said, we don't use the uh, SolarWinds networking product. It was this very careful statement he made. Uh, SolarWinds has a second product. It's called FTP, File Transfer Protocol. And FTP servers are how companies have sort of big servers that send big files to each other. It's called an FTP server. And... The company in question uses a ton of SolarWinds FTP product, which has this other, it's the same, it's notoriously porous. It has the same kind of problems as it. So he was really kind of a dancing guy when he said, well, we don't use the network engineering product. He could have been telling the truth. 
but they are up to their eyeballs in the SolarWinds other product, which was completely porous for all the same reasons. And so but by saying that SolarWinds had suffered a big thrown hack and saying, well, don't worry, we don't use the SolarWinds engineering product, but leaving out that actually the whole system is built on the FTP product was a bit of a, I wouldn't have called it the whole truth, whole, full truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I'm throwing that out, but I, I don't want to get too bogged down. I mean, we know, so I can, I could explain it in 15 minutes. I could explain it really exactly. We know so much more. You know, what we had in November were a lot of hypotheses. Some of them have proven true, some of them have proven false, some of them have been refined, but we, we have a very clear picture now of how it was done. I don't want to sort of go into, and I don't really know. It's going to be up to other people who, who reveal who the individual actors are. Uh, so uh, I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to answer that question as to who I think is behind this. I do think that China is, uh, and I'm a China lover. I got to tell you, I, it's kind of sad. China has been, uh, I speak Chinese. It was my undergraduate major, but China is involved in this. I think that this is, for 15 years, there's been discussion of, in Chinese national security circles, about their coming, the coming assassins strike, the, the it's, they have a term that means like a one-punch knockout, a sucker. Okay, any other questions? Uh, AP asked my question. Okay, Hugo Lowell from The Guardian. Is he on? It's uh, Ann Vandershill again. Quick question on Cindy Chafian. Uh, yes. Did you speak to Amy Kramer about this? How did you? How are you aware of this information that Cindy Chafian was working with um, Ali Akbar with this Stop the Steel rally? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about how. Uh, but I can tell you, I don't trust her, and I don't trust him. And I think that they brought real mischief into things. I think that this side is penetrated by all kinds of bad actors, and with all kinds of mixed motives. So uh, it's up to a real investigator to go and look into it. But where I, where anybody who wants to is really looking into January sixth, you need to find out how Cindy Schaefer grease snaked that permit away from her bosses and brought in Ali Akbar and what happened there and who was pulling their strength? Who was behind them? And that's really where uh, the investigation, and, and I think you will find Republican hands were involved in this. As many people must know, <coughs> um, as many people must know, uh, you know, I think that the events, I welcome an honest inquiry into what happened on January 6th. Uh, and I feel, if any, to the extent any man, it looks like 700 people, you know, 700 people went in. I'd love to know how many of them were under February. How many of them were federal assets? My guess is about 100. That's just a guess. Maybe not. Let's, well, let's, uh, but I think that that's a, uh, I welcome an honest inquiry into what happened on January 6th, but it would, uh, it, it, it wasn't organic but you can't lay it all at the Democrats. I have to tell you, in all this election fraud, the Republicans are up to their teeth in that. I know people who work in the election machine industry who are telling me that part of any sales pitch is and has been for years, subtle overtures from the officials to whom you're talking to about the ability to use your equipment. So if you're a salesman selling the machine, that when you're dealing with the county officials, part of the deal is the nudge and wink about how much flexibility in America America, that soldiers dying overseas, so America, you can say what we believe, my America, I won't ever take a knee. My freedom is the reason you can disrespect our flag.